uh, just that testimony that Alex shared with us about Mason. That serves as our, just our introduction to the sermon this morning. So um, before we dive in, however, just want you to know there's questions in this text that we're not going to get to <laughs> this morning. So this um, section of scripture easily could be two or three sermons that we're going to squeeze into one. So that's okay. You're believers in Christ, and if you would like to dig into some of those questions, you can do that. Um, we don't have to cover everything on a Sunday morning this morning. But so as we're going along, though, you might be, well, what about this or what about that? And that's good. You should be having some whatabouts and take those whatabouts home and uh, engage with some good resources, biblical resources, and um, I think that would be wise. Big idea of the text this morning is in the suffering and in the rejoicing. So there's a range of experience this morning in the text, often is true in the book of James, in the suffering and in the rejoicing, in the pinnacle and in the pit, in all of life's struggles and as well as in all of life's joys, we are called to a life of prayer, praise. It's not on the screen, but I added and community. Prayer, praise, and community. And we're gonna unpack that as we walk through this text this morning. If you're a guest this morning, thanks for being here. Thanks for being with us. We are, uh, if you haven't gathered this yet, we, we are in a series in James, and uh, we, we will wrap that up next week. Steve will have the privilege of preaching next week on that final, those final two verses. So let's dive in. Point number one, suffering, pray. Is anyone suffering? Anyone among you suffering, let him pray. <clears throat> now, I don't know about you, but when, when I'm reading um, a, a book of the Bible, um, in this case, a letter, something that runs through my mind would encourage to be running through your mind is be, be paying attention to introductions and conclusions. And James is a little bit of a different letter, as you know, since we've been walking through it, but the question in my mind as we come towards the end of James is, how's he going to wrap it up? Because he's, he's tackled so many categories, so many different things. Where will he take us here at the end? How will he tie a bow around it and say amen? He's addressed trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. He's, he's addressed anger, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. And he's addressed wisdom. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. And he's addressed worldliness and he's addressed um, temptations. Let no one say when he is tempted, he's being tempted by God for God tempts no one. He's addressed obviously sovereignty and suffering. Um, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, We'll go to this or that town and spend a year and make a profit. Yeah, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are but a mist that vanishes. He's addressed all these different categories. And so I'm coming to the end and I'm asking the question, how is he going to tie it all up? Because the book of James does this, <clears throat> this range of experience. Christian life experience. You might even think of, as you think about <clears throat> last week's sermon, for instance, is you've got this range of experience, right? He, he starts with, as Alex was preaching, um, what? Uh, beware. So come now, you rich. Weep and howl at the miseries that are coming upon you. <clears throat> and then as Alex walked through that text, we found the other end of the spectrum, the suffering end. So on the, on the rich or the prosperous side, <clears throat> and then on the um, adversity side. And, and I think James is expecting us to fill in everything in between. He's giving us the, the extreme of, of Christian experience living in this life. And he's doing so, again, from last week's text, right? Come now, you rich, because, because judgment is coming to you. And he's looking to 
the return of Christ there. And then he says, be patient, what? Until the coming of the Lord. And so he's tying that all together. And that's just an example of just how James unpacks his letter. The range of Christian experience. And he's doing that again this morning. The first portion is the range of, of suffering. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray, and we'll get to it in a minute. But is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs of praise. The range. So how will he tie it all up? He closes the letter, not surprisingly, where he began the letter. Right? James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings right out of the gate. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Jump to the end of the book. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. There's your bookends for the book where he has been, where he, has, um, where he is concluding for us. Are you, are some of you this morning suffering? Let him pray. And I appreciate just James' approach to suffering because he doesn't, he doesn't bring definition. It's broad, broadly speaking. Trials of various kinds, he says in verse 2, chapter 1. Are you suffering this morning? Then pray. What is prayer? Submit to you that prayer is the invitation of God, the invitation by God, where God invites sinners restored into a relationship with the Father to call out to him. It's an invitation of God to invite us to humble ourselves and for the next moments of our life, pray and seek him in, in, in doing so, live dependent on God as opposed to independent of God. Prayer is an invitation by God. It's an invitation for sinners due to the relationship that Christ has provided for us to humble ourselves and depend on the one who is able. Prayer looks to God. Now that sounds so obvious and so basic, and yet we so often jump right over that. That's why I love when you come to a prayer meeting, and in the prayer meeting, we're first directed to consider the character of God. Before we dive into, here's, here's my laundry list of things that I'm looking for God to accomplish in my life, we, we begin with, who is God? What is what is God already provided? How how does God act in our lives? The character of God on display. Frankly, I love that because I forget and I need to be reminded that God is faithful. I forget who God is. I forget that he is all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful. That God is good, he is loving, he is kind, he is merciful, he is compassionate, he is active, he is present, he is the all-wise, present, powerful God. That's to whom we pray. Prayer, first and foremost, is a recognition then of God, who we pray to, who God is, and with that, is tightly connected what he has done. Because his character is displayed in what he does, right? So it's not surprising when we read the Psalms that regularly the Psalms are taking us back to Israel and Egypt and the deliverance of the Lord. God is our deliverer or what have you. And so now... Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Let me ask you this. What are the temptations when suffering? 
What's the temptation of suffering? What temptations are you experiencing in your suffering? When we are tempted, or when we are suffering, we are tempted to what? Doubt in the character of God. We're tempted to doubt in who God is in suffering. Is God good and kind and loving? Is God sovereign over my difficulties? Is God faithful? Can I believe God, right? Faith, can I, can I trust God? Has God forgotten me, right? That's the temptation of suffering. Where are you, God, in the midst of my suffering? Suffering calls on us to doubt. It calls on us to, towards unbelief, which leads us to prayerlessness. Have you left me? So prayer, I'm saying, is an act of humility and dependence where we take our struggles and we lay them at the Lord's feet. We put them before the Lord. And I want to say to you, you'll hear this a few times this morning, this is right, meaning it's appropriate, and it's radical. And I want to point to the radicalness of prayer because I think we take it so much for granted. It's right, meaning it's appropriate, meaning Christ provides for us to in a relationship with the Father, a reconciled relationship that we go to him in prayer. It's right, it's appropriate, and it's radical for the same reasons. For sinful man to be able to come before a holy God and to make our requests known to him and he hears us, that's a radical thought that I think we take for granted. It's right. This is what a child of God does in light of who God is. And it's right. This is what a child of God does who has been redeemed. Now, here's the thing. Let's just bring this into our living rooms. My theology can look good on paper. And I trust so can yours. I've got my theology down in some categories, some I don't. I hold to a historic, biblical, reformed theology. I believe it. I believe I can defend it. I can talk about it, discuss it from scripture. I know it pretty well. We can talk about the theology, like the fancy words or the soteriology, the doctrine of salvation or Christology, the doctrine of Christ or pneumatology, the doctrine of the spirit or the ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church or the eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. And I'm saying to you, it looks good on paper. I've got it, you've got it down in, to some degree. But prayer, prayer tells me if what I know to be true is true in reality. Like prayer and prayerlessness kind of exposes theology. So it's one thing for me to kind of get it right on paper, or I like to say sometimes, right, like it looks good on the website, and it's quite another thing as to whether or not we pray. Because prayer exposes our theology. It's one thing for me to know truth. It's another thing for me to pray because I know truth. It's one thing for you and I to have it right in our minds. But if we're prayerless, our hearts betray us. They expose what's true what we really believe about the things we say we believe. Does that make sense? So prayerlessness exposes my unbelief about the things that I'm saying are true. Prayer goes beyond what my brain factually knows. 
prayer exposes the gap between my head and my heart. And isn't that right? Like that's James. Um, that's the man who looks intently at his face in the mirror and goes away and forgets what he's like. And after he goes away, he's trying to remember who am I and what is that guy? It's the guy who hears but doesn't do. There's a gap. Things that he knows and things that he's not doing. And James is exposing that and he calls, he, he calls it out. He says the person who's a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, what? He deceives himself. Prayerlessness exposes that deception. And the thing is, is that because we can know theological truths, that's why we're deceived. Because in the meantime, we're going, but I know those things. When I'm suffering, when you're suffering, consider this. It's not that you and I don't have plenty of things to speak about. I speak, you speak. And we can tend to speak words of grumbling and complaining and fear and anxiety. Perhaps if speaking to a friend, we can speak words of gossip or slander but how odd it is that we are slow to speak to God. And James is just cutting through all the issues of the letter. You've got to hear all the previous sermons from the letter and, and, and just sitting down. It's a small letter, so you can sit down and read it in one sitting and just hear all of these issues. And he's wrapping it all. He's putting them all in a box and I see him just tying a bow around that thing and pulling it tight. Saying, is anyone suffering? Pray. Is anyone suffering? Call the therapist. Is anyone suffering? Call the BFF. Anyone suffering? Talk to your pastor. Talk to your friend. Now, I don't say that to say, don't do those things. I say that to say, but are you praying? Well, sadly, sometimes I would, you would rather grumble, stew, and doubt. And James says, no, pray. Why? Because something, someone exists that's bigger than your suffering. And for those of you who are Christian, you are redeemed by the blood of Christ. He invites you, follower of Christ, to come to him in humble, dependent prayer in the midst of our suffering. Have you considered how amazing prayer is? Or do we just take it for granted? Are you humbling yourself, depending on God, placing yourself in his sovereign care? Have you found him to be worthy, to be trusted? Is he near? Is he good? Is he kind? Is he loving? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Number two, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, here's what's interesting, right? The range of Christian experience. So point number one calls us that in our suffering, what? He, he's telling us, run to him in prayer. Point number two, in our prosperity, in your cheerfulness, what? Run to him. Here's what's amazing. We might think, okay, yeah, I get it on the suffering side. I need to, to run to him. Or we might think over here, well, in, in prosperity, of course, I'm, I'm running to him. No, they're both, ex they both expose us. In our adversity, we tend to stew and grumble and complain. In our prosperity, we tend to, what? Take him for granted. 
and think all that I have is because of me or whatever it might be. I see both point one and two doing the same thing, calling us to run to our God. Consider that if there is anything good in your life, every good thing in your life is because of God. Actually, James has already told us that. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Any good thing in our lives is from the Lord. That's why it's appropriate. Let him, let him sing praise. But I want you to consider, isn't it amazing that there's any good thing in our lives? Have you thought, or do you just, do we just presume, well, sure, there's good things in our lives because I'm a good person. I'm seeking to live for the Lord. Certainly there ought to be good things. We can kind of import karma into Christianity when we think like this. If you understand the rebellion in the garden, And if you were just to bump forward a little bit in your Old Testament, and if you were to understand God's chosen people absolutely rejecting the God who delivered them. I mean, the the marked way that the prophets speak to that, consider Hosea, that Israel is whoring themselves. away from the Lord who is faithful. Bump yourself forward and that's God's chosen people and you just, you just work through the Bible like that and we perhaps can do that and start to think, yeah, it's amazing that any good thing came to them. It's amazing that any good thing comes to us. It's stunning that any good thing comes to us. When you consider humanity's rebellion against the creator and redeemer, it's amazing that there are any good days in any of our lives. Do you believe that? Perhaps not. Perhaps, perhaps you don't believe that. Perhaps you think there should be good things. But that's probably because you think little of the garden and the rebellion of man against God in the garden and ever since, and you think little of the holiness of God. We tend to elevate our goodness. That wasn't that bad. Kind of a mistake here or there. Nobody's perfect. And we tend to devalue God's holiness and his glory and his perfection, his perfect righteousness. And we just think, well, you know, we should be able to just get along. church, I submit to you, we should be stunned in amazement that there is any good thing in our lives. We certainly haven't done anything to deserve such goodness. And it's not as if the Lord has provided for us a token of goodness in our lives. It's not as if I could say to you, well, there's some goodness if we search hard enough But that goodness surrounds the believer everywhere you look this morning. If we take the time to look. It's amazing to me this morning that you and I woke up. That he's given us another day. That that you and I, we're still breathing. That's the kindness of the Lord. It's amazing to me that any of us have any sort of health, that we have friendships, family, healing, 
Uh, it's amazing to me. I know some of you are students and you can't wait to be done. It's amazing to me that you get to be a student. I would love to go to this man's history class, sit in in high school history with Mr. Dennis Berry. I would love that. Now, sorry, Benny. I'm not, where are you, Benny? Yeah, I'm not a math guy, so I'm not sitting in on your class. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's, it's amazing to be able to open God's word and study it. It's incredible that we have God's word in our laps or on our phones, that we can have it before us, that we can read it, we can study it. It's amazing. I know, I know it is 800 degrees outside, right? And it's probably going to rain today, you know? <laughs> like, like, and I thank God for the rain. And I thank God for the oceans, the bodies of water that we live near and drive over and hardly think anything of. And I thank God that this fall I'll be headed to the mountains and we'll see waterfalls and take hikes in the woods. And I thank God for his creation and all of its splendor and beauty, what he made. And that's all like... Uh, um, we're not worshiping the creation. We're, we're worshiping the creator, the one who, who made it. And it's his goodness to us. Sinners, rebellious people that he provides. We just go on and on and on. Bioluminescence, probably going on tonight, right? Resources that come your way today, that's probably going, you're probably gonna eat today. You've got food and you've got roof and you've got technology. You've got microorganisms that we don't even know, like, right? Pull out your microscope and pull out your telescope and behold the glory of God. It's his goodness to us and it surrounds us everywhere we look. And I'm saying to you, we should be amazed by that. And it produces in us a cheerfulness. Let him sing praise. Or in other words, let them run to God in that joy, in what we experience. Is anyone cheerful? Rather than forgetting God, or rather than assuming God, or taking God for granted, or keeping God at a distance, or ignoring God, or even dismissing God, let them sing songs of praise to God. Because whatever good thing you're experiencing, you're experiencing because of God. It's a broken world. It's a fallen world. So point number one, in this fallen world, there will be suffering. So pray. And it's a broken, fallen world, point number two. And so where there is cheerfulness, be amazed at the goodness of God and sing praise. And it's a broken, fallen world. And so point number three, there is sickness. And I tried to take the next rest of the section. What is that? All the way from 14 to the end, 14 to 18, and tried to think, how do I put this in a word? And in a word, I'd say community. Because you can't do verses 14 through 18 in isolation. You can't do it. Let them call on the elders. You can't do that in isolation. And you're gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna tell us, we'll get to it in a minute, he's gonna say, confess to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. You can't do that by yourself. So thanks for coming. <laughs> thanks for being a part. It makes preaching more enjoyable from this side of the pulpit too. Is anyone sick? Community. This is how Paul Tripp puts, a, puts this. Your walk with God is a community project. We have to reject the privatized Jesus and me religion of Western culture. Where we prize our privacy, where we prize our individualism, you were not hardwired to do this by yourself. This is a community faith. I like it so much. I'm going to read it again. Your walk with God is a community project. 
We have to reject the privatized Jesus of me religion of Western culture where we prize our privacy, where we prize our individualism. You are not hardwired to do this by yourself. This is a community project, a community faith. You know, points one and two are right and radical. So is point three. This is just doesn't make sense to our culture. That screams isolation and individualism. Pull into the garage, shut the garage door, wave to each other tomorrow morning as we head to work. Or in the church, show up on a Sunday morning for a couple hours, shake a few hands, we'll see you next Sunday. That's not the New Testament. That's not community. And so there's a number of things here that as we unpack these verses, I want you to see the good gifts that God gives. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. The first thing that God gives is he gives elders. Now, a couple things I want you to note about that. That isn't the point of James. James isn't making these points, but I want you to note some things about that. First of all, it's elders, plural. And it's elders, plural, wherever you see the word elders in the New Testament. It's plural. There's a plurality of elders, and we appreciate that and practice that at Trinity. Second, it's not that elder means older. It just means elder in the sense of maturity in the Lord, maturity. Uh, Nowhere in Scripture does that put an age frame to elder. Thirdly, not spoken here, but again, uh, you could look 1 Peter 5, Ephesians 20. Uh, No, not Ephesians 20. (laughs) The Ephesians church in Acts 20. I don't think Ephesians goes to 20. Acts 20. Um, Elder is the office. Pastor is the role. what, What does the elder do? He pastors. And you'll see that in those two, again, um, 1 Peter 5, Ephesians not 20, Acts 20, speaking of the Ephesian elders, uh, uses both of these words to help us flesh that out. And so that's why sometimes, if you're new to Trinity, you'll sometimes hear us say, hi, my name's Tim, I'm one of the pastor elders here. Because elder is the office, and the function of an elder is to shepherd. That's what the word pastor in the original means or is. Well, we could say we could say more there, but let me just one more thought. Thank you for the privilege of pastoring you. Too often. Too often. Hmm. Edit my thoughts. Too often I meet with pastors who pastor begrudgingly. Is it First Peter 5 speaks to that too? Is it? F- Thank you for the privilege of pastoring. In this text, getting back to the text, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. I just want to, I want to place some responsibility on you. Call for the elders. It's not to say that James is saying the elders can't say, hey, is anybody sick? We want to, we want to anoint you with oil. We'll do that. But there is a responsibility for you to call on the elders. And we appreciate that. So Alex shared about Mason, goes back a few weeks, but there was another one of our members last week that I think contacted Alex during the week and just, we ended up anointing him with oil last week after the service and praying over him. And I just appreciated that this individual asked for the elders. We need to pray. So he gives elders. 
Secondly, he gives his spirit. Let, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. What does it mean here to anoint with oil? Make sure you bring with you, pastor, some magic potion. It's not what it means. There's no magic, there's no magic potion. Listen, beyond that, there's no manipulating God. Whether that be through a magic potion or magical words, like there's no, the power to heal is not in man. Okay, so he gives, the point that I'm making is he gives the spirit. And when he talks about anointing with oil, the oil is, is a symbol. It represents the power and the healing that's found in the Spirit of God. The power is not in the oil. It's just because we're dull human created beings that we need things like symbolic representative things to help us to remember. It's, it's very much like when we're taking communion and we're reading 1 Corinthians 11 and you're holding the cup and you're holding the bread and we're reading, this is my body. This is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Is that the body and blood? We're not Catholic here. It's not the body and blood. It's representing the body and blood. It'd be no different than me pulling up a picture on my phone and showing you a picture of my family and I said to you, this is my family. Well, it's... It, it is, but it's not physically my family. It represents family. It represents relationship. It represents there's actual people living and breathing beyond a picture. Anoint with oil. So when we anoint with oil and we pray over a person, there's, there's no magic in the potion. There's no magic in the oil it is to call our attention on the spirit of God who lives in us, who has the power to heal. And we pray in the name of the Lord because it's the Lord who heals. And we need to be clear, it's the Lord who heals. And it says in verse 15, start of uh, verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. This is not a name it and claim it, faith. We do not manipulate God as if we could. This is not demanding of God to heal. This is not a prosperity gospel faith. This is a, God has given us an endless amount of resources as to who he is and what he's done, faith in God. It's faith in God, in who God is and what he's done in our lives that provides that faith. It's a faith that not only is he able, but he's also all wise. And that's why sometimes we pray and we don't get what we ask for. And we could easily do testimonies this morning as well and do them to the glory of God we prayed and I wasn't healed. If there was healing all the time, there would be no need for the point number one of the sermon. There were times when Paul prayed and Timothy was not healed. And, well, he himself, we could go on and on. God is able, God is wise. Alex referenced, God is sovereign, man is responsible. What is man's responsibility? It's to pray. Some folks, you know, again, magic potions, right? Like magic words. You gotta make sure you say these words. You know, if the Lord wills, there's an assumption, I, I, 
Mm. In my heart, there's an assumption to that. It's not like suddenly if I say, if the Lord wills, now the Lord has permission to if the Lord wills. I'm assuming if the Lord wills. Sometimes I'll pray if the Lord wills, and sometimes I won't pray if the Lord wills. Don't think there's any magic to it. We're calling on God to be merciful and compassionate. I think we get so silly. He goes on to say, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. You can study that later on uh, in fuller. What um, Quickly, what's going on here? It, it's helpful that the word if shows up. If helps us to recognize that sickness, to me it helps us to recognize that sickness is an opportunity for us to soberly assess. Is it saying that I'm sick because I'm a sinner? No, but in some ways we are. That there's sickness at all is because there is sin in the world. You understand that, right? And so it's just an opportunity for us to soberly assess one's life and seek God's forgiveness where appropriate. But again, that's not a formula. It's not as if James saying, here are the different hoops for you to jump through to then manipulate God to accomplish your healing. It's not his point. It's rather assess and where appropriate, seek forgiveness of sins. And none of that to say, that if you are sick this morning, it's because you're sinning. And yet to say in one sense, well, that's true for all of us whenever we even get a mild cold because we live in a fallen world. Next, he gives us more community. Therefore, confess your sins, <clears throat> excuse me, sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so um, you can't do that by yourself. James is just unpacking for us without even, it's just, it's the assumed of the New Testament writers that the believer is going to be in community. They have no category for this isolation that we experience in our day. It's church life. It's spontaneous. It's planned. It's community group. It's coffee together. It's a number of different places. It's beyond the elders. So call on the elders. And it's not as if, okay, everything stops there. And confess with one another and pray for one another. Because you have a relationship with each other. And that takes place. We have a prayer meeting that takes place in the chart room at 9.15 on Sundays. But can I also say to you, prayer meeting takes place all over the building all the time. So let's have a prayer meeting up here this afternoon and let's have a prayer meeting back there and let's have a prayer meeting in the lobby and there should just always and regularly be prayer meetings taking place because that's what community is because we confess to one another and we pray for one another and someone shares with you. Have you ever done this? Would you please pray about this for me? And you say, sure, I'll, I'll be praying for you and you completely forget. It's okay, you've done it. <laughs> We've all done it. And because we're dull and we forget, maybe it's just best to, can we pray now? Maybe now's a good time to pray. Every corner of the building is a prayer meeting waiting to happen. But the verse is another reminder that I need you, we need each other, Church life is not a bunch of people who happen to show up in the same building at the same time for a couple hours on Sunday. That's not community New Testament. See you next week. Next thing he gives is he gives righteousness. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. This is not, hey, let's find the most righteous man or woman in the building and they can pray for us. Look around you. <laughs> well, we're in trouble. Look around you and be filled with faith. Because the righteousness, whenever 
the Bible speaks of the righteousness. It's not speaking of the righteousness that you come up with in and of yourself. It's recognizing that the righteousness isn't my own. It's righteousness imputed from Christ on the cross. It is righteousness given. It's righteousness declared. It's righteousness provided. It's the righteousness of Christ. And so look around you and let's have that chuckle. It's kind of a funny and it's appropriate. And then let's look around you and let's pray. Because you've been redeemed by Christ and you've been provided the righteousness of Christ. He gave us righteousness. The prayer, we could maybe make our own amplified version of this verse here this morning. The prayer of a saved, imputed, righteous man or woman who's been given perfect righteousness through Christ has great power as it is working. That would be appropriate. And that points away from the person who's praying to the God who provided such righteousness. God's already done a more amazing work. Whatever it is, as you gather and you pray for each other in all corners of the auditorium, as you're praying for each other, be reminded God's already done something greater. In your life, praying, if it's a believer who you're praying for, He's made a dead man, a dead woman, alive in Christ. God is able. Listen, we don't have to like stir up, oh, I gotta create some sort of faith that I've suddenly got enough faith to now pray. Just consider what God has already done. He is able to do this work. But wait a minute, is God sovereign or is man responsible? Yes, Yes, God is sovereign. And that's wonderful as you're praying for someone who is ill or has a great need to know, yes, God, you are in control and you, you rule and you reign. And yes, for some reasons beyond me, you give us a responsibility. You want your sovereignty to work its way through sinful man. And so pray. He calls us to pray. God is sovereign and his sovereign hand. In his sovereign hand, he is ordained and we play a part of that, part in that accomplishing his will and that is just mind blowing. Our prayers somehow matter. And then lastly, he gives us an example. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. Now, time out, right? Like I, I fall on both sides of this spectrum of going, no, he wasn't. Like, he, Elijah, have you read about Elijah? He did some stuff. He wrote scripture. He heard from God. And, oh, yeah, no. And then you go, yeah, he is. Elijah, the guy who stands on Mount Carmel and calls on God to, with his fire, just, light up the, the offering in front of the prophets of Baal. <laughs> Fill it with water first. Let's make sure it doesn't work. <laughs> and then, you know what? He's such a guy like me. Next chapter, he's cowering in a cave, hiding from a woman, afraid of her. She might take his life. Yeah, Elijah, you sound a lot like, more like me at that moment. And in saying he has a nature just like you and me, that's true. The point of the text isn't the power of Elijah. That's the whole point. It's that he has, he's just like you and I, but it's, it's not about Elijah. It's, it's about the spirit of God who lives in you. point is that the power is in, God, in the God of Elijah and the God of Tim and the God of you. He was a redeemed man, just like you and I. 
His redemption came looking forward to the cross, to, to, to Christ. And our redemption comes looking back to the cross of Christ. And both are saved and both are made right because of Christ. And because Christ lived a perfect life and because Christ died and he rose and he ascended, this is why we can pray. Christ reconciled us to the Father. Christ is our mediator. We don't go through a priest. He is the great priest. He is our mediator. And when he ascended, he tell, he's telling his disciples, look guys, it's good for me to go because I will send another helper, an advocate who will be with you, who's not just gonna to walk among you, but he's gonna now live in you. The Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We can put our full trust in him as we pray for one another. Jesus lived and died and rose from the grave. And because he did, Jesus is our doorway into prayer. Jesus is our invitation into prayer. Come boldly, Hebrews says, or come with confidence into the throne room of grace. Jesus is that confidence. It's not confidence in ourselves, certainly not boldness in ourselves. It's because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Jesus is the reason we can call out to the Father in prayer for each other with great faith. He is the hope of prayer. Jesus is why we even pray. In the suffering and in the rejoicing, right? In all of the spectrum of life, in the pinnacle and in the pit, in all of life's struggles as well in all of life's joys, we are called to a life of prayer and pray. So is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call on the elders and confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. That's community. Father, thank you for your graciousness to us, Lord. Lord, in, in all three of these different points, it is, the text is calling on us to run to you. Yes. Not to run to a man, not to run to a certain formula, but to run to you. So God, I pray you might help us to do that very thing. Yes. Lord, I thank you and I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.